Welcome all to today's webinar. Um, we have a very interesting subject and a very interesting person in the room. Dare to lead like a girl author, Dahlia Feldham. Welcome to the show. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, for having and, yeah it's a pleasure. It's an honor, in fact. And uh, if I may just introduce myself to the you know, audience who is coming in for the first time to attend this webinar. Uh, my name is Sharad Agarwal. I'm the founder of OnlyWebinars.com. I'm based in Dubai, and I've been running this platform uh, for slightly over two years. We've done 60 plus webinars, and we do leadership. We do Metaverse, NFT, Web3. So um, this is a leadership series webinar, and I'm uh, very happy to introduce to you Dahlia, who actually uh, I got to know about through a common friend. Uh, his name is uh, James Michael Lefferty, who's also based in Dubai. Uh, he was one of the uh, speakers on our earlier webinar last year. He's an Olympic coach, a, a great guy, a great uh, team leader. And he talked about uh, championship, you know, how you can be a champion in life, in, in any field, really. So thanks to James, I connected to Dahlia. And here we are, Dahlia. So welcome once again. And I'm going to hand it over to you. Who is the real Dahlia Fildan? Please introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, thank you. Well, I will say that Jim was my first boss. They say your career is determined by your first boss. So you call him James. For me, he's Jim. I'll talk about him a little bit later because I, he's part of the story that led me to write the book. So who is the real Dahlia is a question I'm still asking myself, I guess, but uh, I'm a mom of three. I have a 20 year old, 19 year old and 14 year old. I have a crazy startup entrepreneur. I've been in the world of marketing uh, most recently as a CMO. I worked for Procter & Gamble and then another company that I'll talk about later. A great, great career. I call it my 17 years of flow with PNG, and then I had three years of challenge that a little bit kind of propelled me into my second career. So in my second career, I decided to pivot my career and uh, actually go back to psychology, which is where I started. I became, uh, I did my organizational psychology masters in INSEAD and basically positive psychology with Professor Tal Ben Shachar. I met him kind of in a conference, we became friends. He listened to me talk. And he's like, Dahlia, you need to speak on TED and write a book. And I remember I was like, me, you know, um, any girl next door. And he said, well, that's why it's so relevant. So you see here, whoops, on the other side, here, <laughs> my TED talk that went live in 2019 and my book um, that went live in uh, June of, of this year. So today I'm an organizational psychologist working with the likes of the Googles, the Microsoft and leadership development positive psychology. I'm also a founder of uh, Edutech called Happiness, which is about bringing, you know, the principles of positive psychology or solving our daily challenges using tools from positive psychology. And all in all, I'm on a mission to bring back purpose and joy to the workplace. So that's me. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, so, you know, the title of your book, Dare to Lead Like a Girl, it got me thinking, right? Uh, because you're talking about surviving and thriving in the corporate jungle. So can you please put some context on why this topic first and why it's a book on leadership? Well, first of all, the name, 
I remember when I uh, first called, uh, you know, decided on the name, everyone was like, oh, men won't read it. And it's a book for both women and men. Um, and I actually put an article by that name on LinkedIn and 70% of the readers were men. So just like you, it got them thinking. But the name, where does it come from? In 2014, I was one of the marketing directors responsible for the Always Run Like a Girl campaign. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but it became, you know, an iconic campaign. I recently chosen as the 10 most influential campaigns of, of the decade. And, you know, as a marketing director, I'm very proud of the business results. But as a mom, I'm even more proud that, you know, my youngest daughter called me from school all excited. Mom, they're showing your ad in social studies. More than a commercial, it became an icon for women empowerment. And in that commercial, we, we ask a young girl what it means to lead like a girl. And she said, well, it means run as fast as you can. And then we asked kind of a teenager uh, and she kind of, you know, somehow during puberty, it becomes an insult. So our goal with that commercial was to change the meaning of words and reclaim the phrase like a girl to mean be proud to be who you are. And so now I believe it's time to reclaim that phrase again and this time in the world of leadership. And what does it mean to lead like a girl? And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but basically it's you know a homage to that always campaign, but also a provocation uh, for both women and men to realize that our old archaic ways of leadership are not relevant for the future of work. Not even talking Web three or the metaverse, just you know the the principles of you know the the warrior, you know industrial kind of efficiencies, they just don't work, and and we see it. You know employees are suffering. So you asked why now, um, you know, I'll tell you my personal story, but in principle, right, you know, uh, I realized that kind of my hardship was common, you know, in fact, too many employees today suffer from, you know, challenging workplace, 85% of employees are unengaged in the workplace, so we only have 15% engaged employee, that's a crazy number when you think about it, right? Even crazier, 20% hate their work so much that they want everyone around them to hate it. Those are the toxic employees. And that's costing us. Uh, research estimates it at about $7 trillion a year in stress-related disease, absenteeism, et cetera. So the good news and what I've studied is that we can turn it around and we can teach ourselves to you know, be happier and more resilient in the workplace. And that's kind of what my book is all about. How you know, I, I share my own story of how I survived and thrived in a toxic environment uh, and my learning from, you know, the tale of two cities, you know, 17 years in a great company, right, that really believes in people first, that was PNG, and three years in a challenging environment. And I saw on myself, you know, how I delivered 200% in one company and in the second one, maybe 10% because I was so busy defending myself. And I said to myself, that's a huge waste of human potential. And that became my mission to kind of help more leaders understand what's the secrets to creating that kind of thriving environment, more employees um, to take, you know, the destiny in their own hands. And, and, and yes, you can't coach yourself out of a toxic environment, but you can build your own resilience. So that kind of became my driving force to why now? Because too many employees are suffering and I, we know from research what's working to kind of prevent that. So that's my mission. Great. Uh, so I was listening to your TED talk earlier this morning, 
and you have uh, some 178,000 views. Seriously, that's a lot. I get 100 views when I host a webinar. So you are right up there. And obviously, people love the content. Uh, they love the book. They love the story. Uh, so I want to ask you, what really triggered you or inspired you into writing this uh, book? So first of all, Sally, thanks. Uh, Sally mentioned the commercial was a life-changing kind of and super powerful. And, you know, every time I talk about the Dare to Lead Like a Girl, I have people kind of reminiscing, right? Uh, and I think as anyone in the in the audience doing brand building or marketing, I mean, I, I think we have such amazing power to create life-changing experiences. But my own story, so I kind of hinted a little bit to you, but I'll tell you just kind of the, maybe a little bit of the anecdote. And yes, I do talk about it in TED, and it's funny you mentioned the two, almost 200,000 views. When, when it went on, you know, my coach in TED asked me, okay, what's your target? And I said, oh, 20,000 uh, views. And he's like, no, 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 that's not really a target. What's your stretch target? And I just said, a million views. I want to touch a million hearts. So that became kind of okay, you know. So every year we're uh, adding about a hundred thousand. So with your power, you know, if you if you like what you see, forward the TED talk, and maybe we'll touch a million hearts. But so for me, I was I started with the PNG. I I mentioned it was the years of flow. Jim was my boss, and I'll tell you a, a tale of two cities. Okay, so the year was 1998. I was in Jim's office because one of my launches hit a wall. Okay, there product was stuck in customs or something like that. And I'm sitting in his office and I'm getting so angry and frustrated. And you can see when I even think about it, I just tear up. That's, that's who I am. Right. And I'm sitting in his office and I tear up and I'm like, oh my God, this is the general manager, my manager's manager. And I'm frantically trying to regain my composure. And Jim gives me a tissue box. And when I finally regain my composure, look at this, I tear just thinking about it. He looks me dead in the eye. And he said something I'll for always remember. He said, Daniel, don't you ever be embarrassed for crying in the office again. It's a sign of your passion. And passion, Dahlia, is your superpower. Wow, right? I can tell you, I was so empowered. And then he added, you know, and if you ever work for someone that doesn't appreciate that, walk away. They don't deserve you, right? And luckily for me, you know, in the 17 years in PNG, I had many managers like Jim that believed in me, sometimes more than I believed myself. And I was able to bring my purpose to work every day with this campaign, with other things that, that I did. I was just, you know, yeah, passion is your superpower. A lot of comments, wow. 17 years later, okay, I left PNG. It was kind of a family decision. We moved with PNG from Geneva to Moscow and then to Singapore. And after five years in Singapore, they needed me back in Geneva. My husband opened the high tech. I said, oh, I want to put my money where my mouth is. We always said we're equal. We kind of take care of each other's career. I decided to leave PNG. We left with friends and I took a role as CMO for another amazing company. I don't mention the name, but a Fortune 500 company. I love the company. I love the CEO. I love the CMO. I love the vision. They brought me in really to turn around the, the, the company to become more consumer centric. You know, I had 100 employees all across Asia. It looked like the dream uh, job, right? One month into the role, I got a new boss, which was the local CEO for Asia. And, you know, I can tell you, it took me a week to realize that him and I were like, 
fire and water, okay? So I'm the fire, all about passion and energy and positivity and people, and he's all about numbers and scorecard and ROI. It was so extreme. We used to joke that the culture was ROI or you die, right? You know, I still remember in one of my first meetings, he said to me, Dali, I'm not going to tell you what you're good at. For me, it's a total waste of time. I'm only going to focus on what you need to fix. Okay, he was a Six Sigma black belt and that was his approach to everything, including people. And then he kind of added, oh, and there's no art in marketing. It's only science. You just didn't get it yet, right? So anyone in marketing, it was like <laughs> a dagger to the heart. But anyway, the story goes that, you know, that day I was summoned into his office and, and he started giving me feedback. Now, in PNG, we used to call it tough love. Jim was a master of tough love, right? So it's feedback that is direct. There's no sugar coating. It's honest. It's impactful. But it's delivered from a position of care. And I can tell you that day, there was no love. It was just really tough, denigrating, humiliating, belittling. And I'm holding it in. So now I'm a C-suite, right? A CMO. I, I was the only woman on his team. And I'm holding it in. And then he starts berating my team. And that's why I became so angry and frustrated because I knew how hard they work, right? And that's when I, I, like a lioness, you know, I was so angry. I was ready to burst. And when I'm frustrated, I tear up. It's almost like he was waiting for it. And he smiled and he gave me a box of tissues. And I can tell you for a moment, I had that warm, fuzzy feeling. Remember in my first boss, Jim. But then for a moment, I kind of lifted my eyes and I, I noticed something almost weird about his smile, almost evil, as he turned around the tissue box. And he said, I can tell you, I couldn't believe my eyes. On the other side of that tissue box was a handmade sticker he prepared in advance, which read Dahlia's tissue box. Now I don't see the, the people on the call, but every time I give the talk, everyone goes, right? And that was exactly my reaction. I was like, yeah, Annalise, Annalise, oh my, exactly. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, this is an HR assault, right? That's when he became all serious and he kind of sat down and said, oh, Dalia, stop being so emotional. It's just boy banter. I know you have a sense of humor. Now, the funny thing I can tell you, People ask me until today, kind of, you know, why did you stay? Because I stayed there for three years because I kept on saying, I'm not going to quit. I was a competitive gymnast, you know, a platoon commander. I don't quit. It's not in my DNA, right? And I kept on thinking I can change him. And I very realized, very quickly realized you can't change someone that doesn't want to change. And, you know, kind of first year was all about kind of giving feedback and trying to change. Um, you know, and that didn't work. Second year, it was a little bit about flights, avoiding, avoiding conflict. At the end of the year, we delivered a great scorecard, but I felt physically sick. And the beginning of year three, what happened for me is actually I attended a PNG alumni event. And I can tell you, I remember it until today. I walked into the hall in Cincinnati and I literally kind of on the stage were all these leaders talking about servant leadership and people first and I literally planked myself down in the seat and I said, oh my God, you know, I've been a frog in boiling water. I've become so numb to this bullying, right? That I came back and I 
I remember I sat down and I wrote everything that happened. And Jim, I sent it to two people, to my husband and Jim. And Jim called me like a minute later. He's like, Dahlia, this is bullying. This is a toxic environment. You need to get out of there. You can't change a toxic environment. And I remember saying, I am going to leave, but not before I deliver everything I committed to the CEO I'm going to deliver. Because I always deliver my results. And I was, you know, he wanted science and I was committed to bring back my heart and my art to the workplace. And together with my team, we created a campaign that was very science driven, but also very creative. And when that one on FBI I said, okay, I got my mojo back, but you know, I can tell you, and it was time to move on, but the learnings from those three years were immense. It's almost like I got a mirror. So in PNG, I learned how to lead. And in those three years, I got the mirror, the, the shadow of what not to do that made it so clear for me on myself. I would say here, same person delivered 200%, right? Was one rated all my career here, right? The company didn't get from me more than 10% of my ability, right? What a waste in human potential, as I mentioned. And that kind of triggered me. And I decided research is me search, right? I wanted to answer the question, can you coach yourself out of a toxic environment? That was my thesis in INSEAD. And, you know, that led me to start studying positive psychology, as I mentioned, and kind of led me on to my new career and my passion. But I guess, you know, those, I always say, we all have pain and I never wish this pain on anyone. But the real kind of challenge and something that I write about in the book is the notion of post-traumatic growth, right? We all know about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I can tell you when I left, I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I interviewed for companies. Every time I smelled politics, you know, my, my fingers tingled. And it took me a good two years to get it out of my system and learn on myself what it means post-traumatic growth and how can we turn our pain into our purpose and that's kind of basically what i did i'm now in the asshole eradication business <laughs> i laugh about it but i can tell you when the ted came out i got you know thousands of calls i got calls from women determined to do to do something to step up to to take action i got even more calls from men you know that women cried in the office and suddenly they had a textbook they were always embarrassed and it's just kind of this is life some you know men react with anger and slam the door women cry that's how it goes you know i'm not embarrassed by it you shouldn't but the most craziest call i got from a guy in australia and he said to me dalia i saw your ted talk and i realized that i'm an asshole what can i do <laughs> So that's kind of my, uh, in my book, on my first page, I say, if you know a, a boss that's kind of should read the book, send me a note, I'll send the book for free. I'm sending a hundred uh, books a year. But yeah, post-traumatic growth is not about resilience. Resilience is kind of bouncing back. Post-traumatic growth is when you actually grow from, from your pain. So that's kind Amazing. of what I've worked with. Yeah, that's a, that's a very moving story, Dalia. Uh, I'm touched by it, certainly, and I'm sure uh, many in our audience feel the same way. In fact, Annalisa is asking you a question. Did you get any feedback on the TED Talk from your ex-colleagues? Yes, I'm trying not to say too much, uh, but um, I actually went and interviewed my ex-colleagues for my thesis. I went straight into the lion's den, right? And that was a very kind of 
earth shaking in a way because they're all decent people. And I think what I learned is a toxic environment, you know, a toxic boss, people mirror a boss. On the positive, they mirror a good leader, okay? But they also very quickly mirror a negative leader. And the impact of that stays even when that boss leaves. The language and how you treat each other and what is acceptable in the corporate world stays. I mean, it's called the phantom toxic boss, right? And so it was fascinating. Some of, most of them saw, you know, most of them were bullied in, you know, bullied in some way, not to my level, because I guess, you know, I'm a feisty little one. So I probably answered that more than, you know, others. I'll tell you one thing that happened six months into the role is a, a person that placed me in the role and told me how it's going. And I was very loyal as well, right? So I said, it's okay, you know, it's a little bit challenging. And she said, you know, he's an asshole. You're the only one who can coach him. And her intentions were good, right? But I had this cape over my shoulder. And, you know, I think, yes, I did it. I did chats. Uh, they, everyone suffered to some extent, but we very quickly learned all together that, you know, you, my question was, can you coach yourself out of a toxic environment, right? And my answer is yes and no, okay? So yes, you can build resilience. And I share in the book what helped me build resilience and, and survive and to some extent thrive even in that situation. But my big picture is no, you cannot coach yourself out of a toxic environment. There really is only one strategy that works and that is zero tolerance. Absolutely. I second that. And fortunately, uh, in my career, I've had some amazing bosses. Uh, fortunately, never been in a toxic environment. And now when I'm the owner and entrepreneur, I'm very conscious of the fact that, uh, you know, I lead my team uh, with example. I never ask them to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. Yeah. I love to give them the freedom to operate. Uh, so I'm not a helicopter kind of a boss. I just have one five-minute meeting in the morning and all day the team is on their own. As yeah. long as they deliver, those are my KPIs. So I think, especially, uh, you know, post-COVID, when remote working is commonplace, we need to build trust in our teams and give them the freedom to operate, especially after the great resignation. I think, uh, you know, working from home is almost a way of life. And a lot of leaders uh, got to rethink and re-engineer their business model to accommodate uh, employees' uh, wishes and requirements. So uh, days are gone when bosses could dictate the terms. And I think great resignation has taught us that employees now hold the key and they will decide who they will work for. So yeah. if I'm interviewing tomorrow for a job, I hope I'm not, but if I am, I'd like to check out the boss and, you know, uh, uh, yeah. figure out if that's where I want to be uh, in terms of spending, uh, you and know, I, my eight hours a day. I can tell you, yeah. right. And if this book was, you know, the TED Talk went out before COVID in 2019 and it was still important then, as I mentioned, you know, only 85% engagement, one in four employees experience acute work-related anxiety. One in four, that's crazy, right? Yeah, that was yeah. before COVID. Now bring COVID, work from home, remote teams, the balancing kind of, you know, if you're not 
leading from your heart these days, okay, you have no place in the in the future of work. And you know, there's research that just came out by the Saul Father and Son for Sloan Management Review, and basically they research what is the driver of the Great Resignation. They thought, you know, is it burnout? Is it pay? They found that the number one driver was toxic environments. Right. So if it was critical before, you know, now it's it's imminent. It's imminent that you know. And the good news for all leaders, like the guy that called me from Australia is that all these soft skills, first of all, they are the power skills of the 21st century, right, of the future world. And two, they can be taught. You can teach yourself to have emotional intelligence. You can teach yourself to have more empathy, right? And, you know, it never, leading like a girl never means forgetting about KPIs and performance. I always deliver my numbers, always, okay? My standards are super high for my people. Right. But it's kind of, you know, people rise to your highest expectations or sink to your lowest. And it's about how do you, you know, give high expectations, but also give the tools, the empowerment, the autonomy to reach uh, those heights. So that's kind of what the principles are. Yeah. While I was reading the excerpts of your book, I stumbled across the five P's, the five pillars that you talk about leadership. Uh, can you just explain to uh, our audience what those five P's are and what they mean? Sure. So I decided to kind of create a, a framework uh, for the book. And I don't like to say I invented it because philosophers, psychologists all agree that the only definition for happiness is wholeness. That's Helen Keller said. Okay. And that you need a combination Okay, you need to be growing in each one of them. So, you know, when I do my leadership work, development workshops in companies, I do a leadership assessment based on the five P's. And I tell them it's not that you need to be 10 in each one of the sections, but you need to be growing in each one of the sections and aware of the areas where you're weaker. So I call it the five P coming from marketing. It's easy to remember. So the first one is all around purpose. And purpose is really your core. And that stands at the beginning of everything. That's where everything starts. Purpose is around, you know, understanding what you're strong at what you're passionate about, and how can you bring it into kind of the workplace? And I can tell you, you know, the re- reason I thrived in PNG was I was free to live my purpose every single day. I was passionate about people and people empowerment. So I became a training junkie. I spent 50% of my time training my team and others. You know, I was able to, you know, create campaigns that change life. So this is, you know, about working with your team and understanding your strengths. Whereas in the latter company, my strengths not only weren't appreciated, but they were diminished, right? I was told I was too good with my people. I was even told I was too positive, right? So so purpose is the first one, okay? Understanding your strengths. If you operate from strengths, you have two times likelihood to succeed. Our strengths strengthen us, our weaknesses kind of weaken us. It's not about ignoring your weaknesses, but it's about neutralizing. And I have a whole methodology that I do on finding your purpose that I share some of it in the book. So that's the first one. And it is the first one for a reason because it's proven that he who has a why can endure anyhow, right? And, you know, when you have a purpose, kind of all the rest follows. So the second one is really the endurance, okay? I call it, you know, perspective or the mental strengths. And this is all around, you know, being able to step back. And I sometimes say, 
step back from the movie, you know, from the drama, sorry, so you can enjoy the movie. Sometimes we're so in the drama and, you know, it's sometimes called the three E uh, theory. There's an event and there's an emotion. And we, we think we're reacting emotionally to the event, but we actually are reacting to the evaluation of that event. So the, the perspective is around stepping back so you can understand, you know, how many times it happened to you that someone got really angry at you and you kind of the whole day was like, oh, what did I do? And it's all about me. And it had nothing to do with you, right? Your evaluation was completely flawed. So that's kind of the element of the, you know, perspective. It's all around, you know, how do we deal with failure, right? Failure is a very big driver. We learn to fail or we fail to learn, right? So how do we kind of grow from our failure? That's the perspective. The third is physical wellness, and it's a big deal today. Everyone knows the science of physical wellness, but we're not as good as applying it. Now, sometimes I come to companies, you know, talking about my program, they ask me and they say, oh, we do happiness and wellness at work. We do yoga once a week. Now, I'm a yoga teacher, okay? I'm, an, I'm a huge believer in yoga, but it can't be just one element. So when we talk about the physical wellness, it's what are we doing to take care of ourselves? Okay, I call it better me model. It's about breathing, meditation, eating, touch, recovery, which is all around rest and sleep and movement, right? It's about digital detox. Too many companies. I mean, we're always on, especially with, with COVID. Boston Group Consultant did research and they forced their employees to take an afternoon a week off and productivity went up 74%. So it's really about making sure you can't pour from an empty jug. So making sure your jug is always full. So that's your physical wellness. The fourth B is the most important. If you only remember one thing from today, you know, uh, basically Harvard did research to discover what is the secret of happiness? What is the number one driver of happiness? And they did this longitudinal research, 75 years long, you know, 700, uh, um, uh, they basically checked 70, 750 male, men, you know, across 75 years. And they found that the number one driver of happiness was relationships, people, okay? The quality of our life is the quality of our relationships. And as a leader, what are you doing to foster those relationships? What are you doing to get to know your people as people, right? And it could be just your five minutes in the morning, hey, how are you doing? Okay, and just really listening in, how they're doing today? What's happening? How can I help? What's going on in your life? right? And then here is kind of the thoughts and go and deliver. I don't care if you deliver from the moon. You know, I talked about it a little bit in Jim's time. We used to go rollerblading, you know, in the parking lots on the, uh, on the lunch breaks. We used to go water skiing on a Friday. We kind of spent time go getting to know our peers, even though we were competitors, theoretically, we had different brands we were responsible for, you know, we were there for each other. And same, you know, is proven for work. So Gallup did research, the number one driver for happiness at work. And the first thing was, do you have a best friend at work? And all the CEOs, well, what is this stupid question, right? And they kept on trying to kind of reread the data, but that's what it was. It was, a, do you have a best friend at work? And number two was, do you have friends at work? So right. people, people is really important. And then the fifth P is all around positivity. And that's kind of, you know, I remember when I met uh, Talbin Shafal, who's kind of a Harvard's guru. He hates when I call him guru, but, you know, he created the most popular course in Harvard for positive psychology. 
And I started studying with him and I kind of suddenly realized that everything intuitively that I felt about leadership was grounded in research. So he gave me, you know, and then I started teaching in the university. I'm an adjunct professor for uh, positive psychology in Singapore Management University. Positivity is a really important concept in the workplace. And I remember, I'll tell you just a little anecdote. I, you know, when we got feedback as a leadership team that we were too negative, surprise, surprise, right? In the, that second company, I raised my hand and I said, hey, I'm studying positive psychology. I'll, I'd love to do some workshops for us. And, and kind of my boss said, oh, that won't be needed. Thank you, Miss Kumbaya. And that became mm-hmm. a nickname. I was too positive. I was Miss Kumbaya, right? I'm wearing yellow right. today. So, okay. um, and then I learned that positivity is good for business. Our brain is 30% more productive when, uh, when we are in positive state. Every job in the world is better performed when you're in a p- positive state, except if you're a lawyer. Okay, so if you're a lawyer listening in, that's the only job that you need to be kind of a little bit kind of pessimistic, but all the rest, Positivity is important and positivity is not about being happy, happy all the time, but it's really giving ourselves the permission to be human. So those are the Amazing. five. I put all those five P's in the chat. I put also a link to where people can grab your book. And uh, now I need some advice from you, Dahlia, now that I have you on my show. So as you know, I'm in the digital space and I'll share my typical day with you. I have an average of five Zoom meetings I do one webinar almost every week. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I create seven, eight posts a day. I share, I tweet. I'm on Discord. I'm on Telegram. I'm on Botem. I'm on WhatsApp. How the hell can I have a work-life balance? Oh my God. What is digital detox? Is that a myth or is that for real? So let's talk about work-life balance. I explained to you my typical day and I'm telling you a lot of people in the audience are working 12 to 14 hours a day, just like me. So where does work-life balance come in and how do we achieve nirvana? Wow. So, you know, I always say you want to have work-life balance, have kids (laughs) because it gives you perspective, right? It gives you perspective. It forces you. And I remember when I was a mom, young mom, I was like, how am I going to do that? But you come home and they're jumping at you with all their stories. And I just learned that I had to put my phone back in my bag. Okay. And I went back to it. 8.30, they were asleep. And I went back and I often worked until 11. Some days I was in date night out with my husband. But I, you know, um, Franklin Covey. Yeah, Franklin Covey. Franklin? Stephen Covey. Sorry. Stephen Covey. Sorry, I mixed it up. So Stephen Covey talks about, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people. And he tells the story of sharpening your sword. And many people ha- know the frame phrase, but don't really know the story behind it. So you know the, where it comes from? I'll, I'll share with the audience because I think it's such a simple concept. So there were two woodcutters, okay? And the task was to cut as, many, as much wood as possible. And this one guy was like you, 14 hours a day at it nonstop, okay? Blowing, you know, cutting the, the trees, you know, from morning to night. And the other dude kept resting every two hours. And they were like, what lazy dude is that, right? And then at the end of the day, to everyone's amazement, that guy that kept resting cuts significantly more trees than the other guy. And they said, how did you do it? And basically what they learned that every time he took a rest, 
he wasn't, you know, he was eating and nourishing himself, but he was also sharpening his soul. So every blow, you know, he could give less blows and they were all stronger. So, and that concept, I remember learning it kind of early on in my career. And I just kind of became a master of energy, of my own energy, you know, feeling when you need a rest. I do a lot of walking meetings. I don't know if that's, but that's when I do my training program, when I do the physical um, uh, module, I get people with earphones and we do it while walking and they need to take a picture of where they were walking to see that it's possible. So a meeting that doesn't need an Excel sheet, okay, if you're onboarding a new person or in general, we also need these just talking, okay, with our peers. So I do them while walking. That's kind of been one strategy for me. You know, the work from home is something that everyone's talking about. I've been doing it ever since my daughter was 20 was born. PNG, basically, I had a boss who told me, I don't care if you work from the moon, as long as the work is delivered. And that became my focus day. So I'm a little bit ADHD. I'm hyperactive, in case you didn't notice. Um, so I have one day, which is my focus day. And it's really hard for me to get started. You know, and, and once I get started, I hate when I'm disturbed. So I literally lock myself that one day at, work, at home is my focus day for my reading, my writing, everything that requires kind of focus. And I put my phone aside and I, I focus. So there's different strategies, but I think, you know, work-life balance, get as much help as you can. I mean, for anyone who's a young parent, I mean, you're past that stage. I'm past that stage at this stage, but I remember as a young mom, I, you know, one of my uh, first leaders, Deb and Reta, she said, think about help as an investment, not a cost. And believe me, in Geneva, my helper was making as much as I was making as a young associate brand manager. And so it was a big investment, but it allowed me to focus. If I only had three hours, you know, when I came back from work until my kids were asleep, I made sure that those three hours I was present, right? right. And yeah. we ended up doing a commercial about that in Vietnam because you go in Asia and you see everyone sitting in a restaurant and everyone's behind their phone, right? right. And I see it here, moms do everything they can to leave at four o'clock from work and go to the park, but they're in the park with their phone. And there's mm -hmm. nothing kids hate more. Better pick them up at six. They have no notion of time. But when you're there, be there. And I always say, you know, be there for the moments that count. Meaning I missed, I even used to kid my kids, the birthdays always felt on a Saturday, fell on a Saturday. But I, you know, I tried to be there for those important moments, those plays, those birthdays, the key element. So be there for the moments that count and make the moments that you're there count. So, Amazing advice. I've been taking notes and I'm going to really try hard to implement uh, what you're saying. No, I'm working with a tech company right. to close, shut down the systems at 6 p.m. And you can write emails, but they will not get sent until 9 a.m. the next day. That so, is amazing. Yeah. People apply in different ways. That is a practical advice. And I, I hope more companies uh, try that out because you have to experiment, right? Uh, not everything will work for all organizations based on their culture, but leaders need to uh, try out what works for their environment and what works for their teams. Okay, now before we close, I have two more things to talk to you about, Dahlia. In your book, you talk about emotional bravery, and that kind of stuck to me. Can you explain what that means and how can one get there? So, hey, Andrea, I'm just seeing a friend of mine 
Um, yeah, so emotional, I mean, there's a lot of work in the field of emotional intelligence, okay? There's the four elements, getting to know yourself, right? You know, emotional awareness, emotional management, awareness of others' emotions and management of that. All of that is great. But I think one kind of thing that was missing for me is when we say manage our emotions, it sounds as if our emotions are bad. And all the research in the world shows that, you know, suppressing emotions leads to disease. And I worked in Asia for 10 years. There's no region that suppress. We're kind of bred that, you know, you need to hold in your emotions. But what happens is all this passive aggressive, you know, it blows up either in passive aggressive or in disease. And there's enough research. There's a great book by John Sarno around backache. Why? Because, you know, that's the weaker, weakest link for many men. Why? He basically was researching and he found that men experience backache during their wife's pregnancy. And he was like, what is that all about? And he researched into it and he said this suppressed emotion of jealousy. They're jealous of their baby, but they're not willing to admit it, right? So they're suppressing that emotion and then it comes out in their weakest link. And, you know, people said, what's this woohoo research? But look into it. I mean, it's, uh, he's a very respectable, uh, respectable physician. So it's the whole idea of don't, you know, suppress, express. But mm. when you express, there's a way, right? Because if you blow up, okay, so I'm saying it's not about not crying. It's about saying, hey, sorry, you triggered me. I'm taking a moment, you know, come back in a few minutes and then talk emotions unemotionally. Listen, you triggered me. This is important to me. I found that insulting. And why? Because we know the data. We know that only 7% of your message is the content. 93% is the nonverbal. So when you're blowing up emotionally, the other person doesn't perceive what you say. So emotional bravery is giving ourselves the permission to be human, okay? It's not, you know, it is, it's okay not to be okay. And I like Tal Ben-Shakal says, only two people don't have negative emotions, psychopaths or dead people. So if you're sad, mm -hmm. it's great news, right? You're not a psychopath and you're not dead. <laughs> so, I'm going to remember that one, yeah. Right? So first of all, embrace it, okay? I always say, you know, uh, center and then act on emotion. And center again is an acronym. So first it's, it's contain, claim and contain. Hey, I have this emotion. Okay, recognizing I'm angry, etc. The the N stands for name it. Why? It's it's a nice kind of uh, our emotions are stored in the amygdala. Okay, our rationale is stored in the frontal cortex. The two operate as a seesaw. When one is aroused, the other one is depressed. And naming it using language, okay, forces the frontal cortex to operate. And by default, it comes down emotions. Like you say to a child. I realize you're frustrated. So name the emotion. Is it frustration? Is it anger? Is it depression? Is it whatever, whatever it is? So that's the end center. The T is tame. So uh, contain, um, name, tame. What is tame? Tame is around what I said earlier, you know, stepping back. Okay, stepping back from the drama so you can understand, taking the poison out of it. You know, that can allow you to uh, explain, okay, and try to understand with empathy, what's going on? You know, is it me, is it them? What's going on here? And then the last one is refrain. Okay, so what is another way to look at it? And then you act, 
you don't react on emotions, but you act on them. You never bury them. You know, there was a, a I think it was Henry Ford who a, had a system where he used to write an anger letter. So he would write everything out and then he would put it in his drawer and he would read it in the same the next day. And if the emotions were still raw, he would leave it in the, and only when his emotions were calmed down, but he was still angry, then he acted yes. on it. So, uh, so that's kind of the idea of yeah. being emotionally, you know, brave is, is recognizing all range of emotions, okay? And as a leader, making space for them, okay? Because different people react, some, as I mentioned, you know, and it's scientifically proven that men react to frustration with anger and walk out and slam the door. And women maybe will tend to be sad. And why is one reaction better than the other in the workplace? They both say you're triggered. If an emotion is really high, it's usually connected with fear. So there's something that triggered you. Let's understand what it is. How can I help? That's the only reaction. To Amazing. That's a masterclass on leadership right there. Thank you, Dahlia. And the very last thing before I let you go, uh, you know, I want to give a shout out actually to Dr. Annalisa Boyson, who's very active on the chat. She, she's an impact entrepreneur and I'm part of her global village. So she's got global entrepreneurs and trying to create a, you know, great impact uh, through the village, uh, which uh, in time is going to be in the metaverse, etc. So uh, big shout out to Dr. Annalisa for the oh, good work that she's doing. Yeah. I was excited and, to know she wrote. I didn't know the original of the saying, the origin of the right. saying. Many don't, the sharpened the sword. Thank you. Yeah. And, and you know, a part of being an impact entrepreneur is about giving back. And I was earlier, Dahlia, on your website and I saw a tab which said giving back. Tell mm -hmm. us more about that. So, first of all, the book, all profit from the books, uh, year one, goes towards Lead Like a Girl programs for underprivileged uh, girls. Um, and this is a nice story. I always planned to do that when the book came out. And six months before the book came out, I got a call from a lady in India and she said, hey, I saw your TED talk. I wonder if you would come speak for us. I have this non-for-profit, uh, you know, we take women that are just starting their career. Um, and there's a scholarship program. And I'm, I said, yeah, I'm in. And then she told me, and there's girls from Africa as well. And then she said, and guess what we call the program? The program is called Lead Like a Girl, based on the commercial, right? right. So here I am. So now I'm on the board of that. Uh, and we have another program in India. And we're looking to expand to the UK and, and the US. But, you know, kindness is contagious. And the one kind of thoughts you know, that I want to leave you with is, you know, I come originally from Israel and in Israel, the, the root of the word to give is Natan, N-A-T-A-N. I don't know if you notice, but it's a palindrome. It can be read right. the same from left and from right. And because that's the meaning of giving. When you give, you get. And, you know, I just love seeing the ripples of kindness. And I did a little campaign with kind of, buy a book for a friend and see what happens with it. Um, so I invite you all, you know, if, if, this, if this touched you, you know, and you want to bring more purpose, joy, and kindness back into the workplace, we know scientifically that it helps productivity. So anyone's thinking about ROI, there's no ROI without people. I now call it return on interaction. Okay, so how can we get higher return of interaction through the five Ps, 
through giving back, through kind of whatever you're doing. And, you know, everyone can give something if it's only their smile, right? Or their kindness. So that's kind of what I try Thank to you. do with the book and with others. And, you know, I think uh, the biggest thing is lift others as you rise. Thank you, Dalia. Can you be my best friend? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm coming to see you in Dubai. In so September. yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you in real life early September. Please uh, give me prime time. I want to spend one hour with you and uh, you know do a deep dive on leadership. And this has been an amazing session. I'm sure I echo uh, you know the words of the audience here. And on a housekeeping note, uh, there's going to be a recording of this available along with a podcast tomorrow, same time on onlywebinars.com. Do share this conversation with your family, with your friends, with your community. Let's try and touch as many hearts as we can and change as many people as we can. Dahlia, it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. And now that you've agreed to be my best friend, you've made my day. And I look forward to seeing you on the other side. So all the best. Take care. Be uh, good. Thanks, everyone. See you Have soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, audience. See you. LinkedIn and anything would be great to be in touch. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.